Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders. Produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association and hosted by John Paul Young. Yeah, there's something for you at the Men's Shed. Hello and welcome to The Shed Wireless podcast. Made in Australia and distributed all over the world for the love of shedding. I'm John Paul Young and it is truly a pleasure to be back at the mic for another season of The Shed Wireless in 2023. This year we're kicking on from where we left off. More conversations with special guests and stories from shedders far and wide. We've invited some handy guests back for On The Tools and your favourites Butch and Rip are having another crack. We've changed up Ask The Doc a bit. We're putting our finger on the pulse of your well-being and health as Men's Shed always does. AMSA's Men's Health Project Officer, Stuart Torrance, will be tackling a new topic in each episode. We'd love to hear what you want to know more about, so drop me an email at theshedwireless at menshed.net. 2023 is a special year for my friends at the Australian Men's Shed Association. And of course, all you folks out there in Shedland across the country, celebrating 30 years of shedding, The first community shed for men was opened in Goolwa, South Australia, in 1993. And I thought it most appropriate to kick off this season with a special focus on one of our favourite topics, sheds. Here's what we'll be talking about in this episode. Our shedder in the spotlight is a very special lady by the name of Maxine Chaseling. Maxine is one of the founders of the very first sheds, and to her we owe a great deal, and it's a great chat. My special guest is David Helmers, the Executive Officer of the Australia Men's Shed Association. David has seen many of the past 30 years of sheds, and we had a great chat about the past, the future, and shedding. On the tools, we're back in the kitchen with Adrian Richo Richardson. Marty and Richo are going to be discussing how to change up your dish to suit the season. And trust me, you'll be drooling. We know it, but even the science says so. Men's sheds are good for your health. We've got our finger on the pulse of men's sheds and men's health with men's health expert and AMSA patron, Emeritus Professor John McDonald. Butch has been back on the road and Rip's digging into some life lessons. Must be an age thing, but how would we know about that? So let's get into it. You're listening to The Shed Wireless with my good friend, John Paul Young. It's a podcast for shedders across Australia and around the world. Get ready to shed. Yeah, there's something for you at the men's shed. Today's honorary shedder in the spotlight has a very special story. We're going back to the early 90s, to the birthplace of sheds, Goolwa, South Australia, with Maxine Chasling. Maxine played a special part in founding the shed at Goolwa Heritage Club. Maxine, welcome to the Shed Wireless. We're thrilled to have you uh, on the on the show. And uh, <laughs> I, I just realised you're not in Goolwa at the moment. You're in the Gold Coast hinterland. That's right. Yes, and I left Goolwa in 1998. It's a very special place. Well, it is, isn't it? I mean, that is, uh, it's uh, the mouth of the Murray River. That's right. And it's, uh, um, you know, I was there for 12 years and um, loved every minute of it. 
while speaking of 12 years, let's go to 30 years. Mm-hmm. Does it feel a bit surreal to think that you and you and Raz got a, a group of blokes together for what is for some a lifetime ago? It, well, it is. It is a lifetime ago. Raz is no longer with us. He oh. passed away in 2006. He, lovely, lovely man. Also, yeah. Reg Vowles was an, another one of the first volunteers. But um, mm-hmm. cause it had never been done before. No one had ever built a shed um, for retired men mm-hmm. with the aim of actually getting the men to be together, to mm-hmm. socialise together, to to actually uh, have purpose in their life, to participate within the community. Those were the key elements that I was looking for. Mm. Um, that uh, I could see the women were doing in retirement that the men weren't. And um, was, was this was this just your total inspiration on, on your own, or it it really was. Oh. It, it really was, and it was. I think um, I explained to uh, Professor Barry Golding years ago that um, I felt that there was a uh, a progress of uh, a chain of events that had me in the right spot at the right time. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, I think it started really back in 1984 when um, I was fortunate enough to go from being a clinical nurse to a community health nurse. Right. I got a scholarship and became a community health nurse. And then in 1986 um, there was a... Uh, a linking men's service conference in Norlunga. Uh, mm-hmm. At that time, I was the coordinator of aged care services in Norlunga, and I was involved in that uh, linking men's services. And that's when I really became aware of how hard it is for us as health professionals to provide the right services for men, especially men that, you know, are a bit older, um, but really all men, you know, they're, they're a different breed and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, they don't automatically, well, they don't like being helped, you know, they really don't like being helped. So at the this conference I was... Um, you know, I really, uh, I was just handing out the programs, <laughs> but um, I was listening in at the same time and uh, became very aware of the difficulties that the health service were having um, mm. in trying to assist men in general with health services and also the other way around. Why, you know, couldn't the men access the same services that the women were using and so this was playing around in my mind really from uh, 1986 Um, so that's really where my thoughts were in 1986 but and also in 1986 I went from a job in Norlunga to becoming the coordinator of the Goolwa Heritage Club in Goolwa. Which was sixty kilometres from my home in Norlunga. So I really, I took the job on 
um, thinking I'd only be there for a year or so um, and not understanding how I would become so involved in the community um, at Goolwa and Port Elliot and Mount Compass, the the whole region. Mm. Um, So that's where the first thought came into my head. Uh, I then became very, very busy uh, as the coordinator of Goolwa Heritage Club. Um, And then I realised, well, it wasn't until 1989 that I think I realised how uh, we had such a difference. Um, Men would drive into our car park at the Heritage Club and drop off their wives or partners, uh, the women would go inside and, and uh, have all these health services, podiatry, physio, but but um, also exercise classes and walking groups and and lots of lots of fun things too, and also lots and lots of um, socialisation. Um, the men would sit in the car park and not even socialise with each other. Oh. So wow, that must have really hit you like a you know a ton of bricks, you know, seeing that, you know, and seeing all the men in their cars and not communicating with each other. That's right. But oh. I knew how hard it was to get men to be involved. Uh, because yeah. the year before, in 1988, my dad, Bill, he had um had a heart attack, had to have, uh, he was 65, he had to have uh, open heart surgery. And so he went from being a general manager to sitting in a recliner. And no one could get him out of his recliner. Um, He also became, I felt, depressed, but you couldn't say that to Dad. Mm -hmm. Um, But we all could openly say he was very grumpy. Um, he was a grumpy old man sitting in a recliner waiting yeah. to die. And, yeah. um, you know, he certainly was uh, annoyed the hell out of all the family, but <laughs> we couldn't do anything for him. And then one day at Goolwa, which was, you know, a long, long way from where he was out in Elizabeth. So right. by that time I was 100 kilometres away from him. I, I thought... I'm, I'm just going to ring up Meals on Wheels at Elizabeth and um, actually it was Salisbury, but say, you know, Bill wants to be a driver, um, but his phone's out. Can somebody send him around a roster? And, of course, they <laughs> they took all the details and fortunately they sent a man around, another driver, Meals on Wheels driver, and Dad answered the door and the fella started off by saying, thanks, Bill, we really do need a driver. Dad had never heard, didn't know anything about it. But the moment that that man said we need help at Meals yeah. on Wheels, all of a sudden Dad was in. You know, uh, he, he didn't query the fact that he hadn't contacted Meals on Wheels. <laughs> he hadn't offered to be a volunteer. But the moment a man said, um, you know, we need help, um, yeah. Dad was right into it. The next day... I had two police officers turn up at Dad's door and they said, Bill, we hear you'd like to be uh, the neighbourhood coordinator for, um, you know, our our neighbourhood watch. 
And Dad said, of course I'll help you blokes, you know. And, um, you know, Dad just needed to be asked by a man and to have a job to go to. And those keys got into my brain. Um, You know, if it works with Dad, I can't can't call meals on wheels for every man in the in the world but (laughs) (laughs) um I was just looking at the men that were in my car park at uh, the Gordon Club and thought those men are never going to walk through the front door Mm. they're never going to participate in what we do inside so um I thought to myself well my dad's his place has always been the shed so I went to my management committee, and that was back in 1989. I went to the management committee of the Heritage Club and mm-hmm. put forward a strategy for men's health in retirement, and it was the shed. Um, so oh. that's where it all started from. Oh. Um, you know, it, that is an incredible story. Uh, you must be so proud to see what sheds have done and what, what they've amounted to all these years later. Well, I, I'm happy. I really am. I'm happy. Now, I, I know I, I struck the match, as uh, Barry Golding says, um, but then I got into other work, so <laughs> I wasn't around. Everybody else has made it happen. You know, I put the idea out there because, yeah. you know, really I, I, I knew the shed would work the moment that um, – the cement mixer backed into the property to lay the base for the shed. Mm. Um, all the men in the um, in the car park got out of their cars to watch. They, <laughs> they came in, you know, they created a group. They yep. talked about it. Um, they walked around, checked things out. Oh, yeah, this is what we're doing and, you know. Um, and all of a sudden that cement mixer created a bond with those men that was like it was very much like a big boy's toy but you know it really it was what they felt comfortable with doing yeah we then had to be very careful about I was very careful because we were all still on the same ground area as um, the heritage club which was for community services for all age people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that the men didn't want to come in. Uh, <laughs> so from the car park, we built the shed on one side of the car park and we cut down some of the bushes so that we could have a path and that the men could, from their driver's seat, this is how strategic it had to be, from their driver's seat, they could see whether the shed door was open. Yeah. But also they could see a dog. It was Raz's dog, um, Rosie, who, who would sit out the outside while Raz was inside. This enabled the men to just say to their wives, well, I'm going to go and see what Raz or Alf is doing mm-hmm. and um, not committing themselves at that moment, mm. walking up to the dog, patting the dog and yelling out from the door, hey, what are you doing? 
you know, oh. what's going on down here? And and with that, Alf usually kind of yelled back and said, come in here and ha- hold on to this for me, you know. <laughs> and um, and then the wives would come out maybe three hours later and they would have to walk down the street to get the newspaper because their husbands were in the shed. Uh, and then the, the wives would be sitting on the, uh, we had a great big in-ground water tank, um, and they'd be sitting on the water tank waiting for their husbands to come out. So, the tables had turned. Tables had turned. Oh, wow. That's yeah. incredible. Have you been involved with any sheds in, in the more recent years, Maxine? No, none whatsoever. I, I um, uh, left... Uh, Gulwar in, in 1998, uh, went yeah. straight to an island off of Papua New Guinea in the Milne Bay um, province um, on Ferguson Island um, and, um, you know, started working in villages. Right. And um, then, then, you know, was working with UNICEF and then, my last position in PNG after this is I was there for ten years um, mm. was with the Institute of Medical Research up in the Highlands, and right. um, so my life took a quite a different turn. Yeah. Um, but then um, I felt I was worried about Dad, but I was a little bit worried about Mum too. She didn't seem as uh, strong as she used to be. So I decided I wanted to come back to Australia and um, and I got a job in Alice Springs and uh, my job was to evaluate all the service, the, the service uh, standard treatment manual used in all the remote Indigenous communities, the 55 remote communities in in Northern Territory, um, mm. so my my job then was to go from clinic to clinic and to audit and to uh, then write a research on on how people are using the standard treatment manual in uh, so that they could update it, and that was edition four. So that's that's how I came back, but it was right. really it was interesting. I. One of the places I went to was Fink, which is about 500 kilometres down, you know, from uh, Alice Springs, and drove into Fink and I saw a sign saying, you know, men's shed mm. in, in this outback. And I thought, gee, that's a good idea. And I kept on driving. I didn't think anything more. Um, I didn't sit there and say, oh, gee, didn't I do a good job? No, it's all those other people who <laughs> have done marvellous jobs. Yeah. So, you know, I'm very happy the way things have gone. I really oh, did, do think that the sheds needed a lot more structure. They needed more support. They needed sure. to be linked into all these health services that, you you know, you now have. It's just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the wonderful things about the Men's Shed movement is that it truly has been a grassroots and community effort at at all the levels. And uh, the movement is not the flower of one man or woman, 
there have been and continue to be many great contributors to this still growing international community, Maxine. I mean, uh, thank you so much for your part. And thank you for sharing your story as a shedder in the spotlight here on the Shed Wireless. And thank you because you've given me a job too. <laughs> well, we, I thought you already had a job. <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Maxine. Maxine Chaseling, without her, we'd be nowhere. Thank you. Okay, bye. We acknowledge the Naranjeri people the traditional custodians of the land on which the shed at Goolwa Heritage Club was founded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Do you know that Vegemite, Neighbours, Ugg Boots and Men's Sheds all have something pretty special in common? They're all iconic Australian exports. That's right, the humble Men's Shed was born right here in Australia, and in 2023, the Men's Shed movement is celebrating its 30th birthday. Australian Men's Shed Association Executive Officer David Helmers has been involved in the Men's Shed community since the very early days, and I thought it only fitting for him to join us as an honorary special guest to relive some of the milestones of 30 years of connection, community and camaraderie. Well, David, you're you're the chief, not the chief executive officer. Not the chief. You're, you're the first I'm not one. A, yeah, yeah, not yeah. the executive officer. We don't need a chief one. We're not a Indian tribe. <laughs> Number one dog's body, as yeah, you said yeah. before. Yeah. Now everything ends up on my desk that no one else wants to deal with, basically. <laughs> so, thirty years of men's sheds. Congratulations years, are in yeah. order. Absolutely. Uh, now you've been there since day one. Pretty much. Not. Day one of the association, I was involved with the Lake Macquarie Shed Project at Windale. Mm. Um, started there in 2006, I think it was. Um, and it was in the first 30 sheds. It wasn't the first. We know the first that this month marks the opening of the Gawler Shed in South Australia. Yes, I spoke to yeah. Maxine. Maxine, she's Beautiful. a lovely yeah. lady, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah, and she, that was the first true shed that was started. Mm-hmm. 30 years ago, but um, yeah, I got involved in the Window Shed back in 2006 and it was the first that was heavily government funded, I suppose, and with government funding comes a lot of reporting and, uh-huh. you know, there's a whole process there, a few light bulb moments uh-huh. um, that came along that way. And I think what we did then really was kind of McDonaldized it a bit. We set up a template, you know, for, through all that government reporting yep. of what sheds... Sh- could look like. But even now, I look back at it at that time, I was only doing the job supposed to be there 12 months. And what is it now? 16 odd years or something I've been there. How did you actually start off getting involved? Um, Look, I think it really goes back further than that. There's a little backstory to it not many people know. Um, I think it was back in 2002, I was on the unemployed list then, looking for work. And because my background, I spent, as I've told you before, 17 years as a baker, you know, before that, and in family business, and we sold that up, and I was at loose ends not knowing what to do. And I was actually up on the North Coast with a mate and his family on holidays, and one of the jobs I applied for was through what was known then in Newcastle as the Two Bishops Trust, that was doing the Menshed project. And I was up on holidays, got a call, you know, for an interview, drove all the way down from Coffs Harbour 
on a Friday afternoon to do this interview and all the way back. And ironically, I didn't get the job. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I did a few other jobs and one of those was uh, managing an agricultural association. And that taught me about associations and a few other things. And in 2006, I found myself leaving that job and the Windale Shed Project job was advertised again. And I applied and I got it that time, you know, years later. Oh. But if it didn't, if I didn't have that little bit in the middle, I wouldn't have gone into the job with the same mindset. I learned a lot about associations. Uh -huh. And while I was there, I'd set up um, with the Agriculture Society a volunteer group. And that was probably my first men's shed without actually knowing what a men's shed was because right. I set it up. And I remember saying to the guys, they were all on... Um, guys over 50 on Centrelink benefits and had to do mutual obligation. And I'd say to the guys, here's your tools, there's a barbecue over there. I gave them a, a room, you know, around the showgrounds and um, said, I don't care if you do any work or not, just come in once a week and I'll sign you paperwork for you. Mm -hmm. And it formed a nice little social club of blokes that would tinker around the showgrounds a bit, doing a bit of painting and cleaning and whatnot and have a barbecue and go home. And technically that was a men's shed. Wonderful. So then it just grew from there and got involved with Windale and keyed up with Ted Donnelly, met Ted Donnelly um, in 2007. The idea of the association was just starting up. And I said to Ted, um, because I'd come from a background in associations, I said, I'm happy to help you put this together. I can see the benefits there of collectively sharing the knowledge. But I said to him, I've only got six months left on my contract and then I'm going back to a real job. Mm. Um, and yeah. that became my real job and a good portion of my life. And since then, several thousand sheds later, all around the world, uh, it's taken me to all corners of the country and the world over those years. And it's just grown from there, pure by accident. That's Who fantastic. would have thought? Fantastic. I mean, um, what... What's what's the biggest feather in the in the cap of the men's shed? Do you think what what's the the big achievement? Look, I think the big achievement. No, I could not deny sheds are saving lives. Yeah, that's simple. Yeah. Um, and they do that in many ways through preventative health and everything else. But we all know it's prevention of social isolation. Just mm. how many lives is you can't quantify that. You know, mm. how do you count how many interventions and lives are saved? It's impossible to do. Yeah. Um, but that's the biggest effect it's had. Yeah, yeah. I, I must admit it, it's it's incredible to um, to when you think of um, a bunch of a bunch of blokes uh, standing over in one corner. Mm. Um, unless somebody strikes a match and makes something happen, exactly, they probably won't talk to each other. You yep. know, because uh, you know, at, if it was women in the same corner, they'd yep. be talking all day. You know, but uh, men, they need that catalyst exactly. uh, to, to, to get moving. Yeah. And I like, yeah, it's like striking the matches, like lighting a campfire. Yeah. You light a campfire and the blokes will gather around <laughs> yes. it and talk it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a similar type thing in the shed. You throw the tools in there and yeah. they're happy to come around and have yeah. those discussions. Uh, yeah, we in interact with each other. The right. tools just bring them together just like a campfire does. So what's what's got you excited about the future? Look, that's a good question. I don't... It's hard to answer with that because if I, if I go back those 15 years, I never thought 
we would have been sitting here now having these discussions. Mm. Um, it's one of the great things about sheds. No one ever planned it. It just evolved. Yeah. So the future's hard to say what will happen. Right. I think it will keep growing. I think in Australia we've reached a saturation point, gone close to it with the 1,270 sheds out there wow. now. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's pretty much a shed in every town. Yes. Uh, it has slowed down in the last few years. So. But I think, you know, COVID uh, had a huge oh, definitely. disruption. And I think COVID too raised the importance to everybody um, about social isolation because everyone experienced it. Yeah. Yes, everybody went back to square one for they a while, did. didn't they? I remember one guy in a shed telling me his son was ringing him every day where he never used to ring him every day. Oh. And he said... His son said to him, I'm just so lonely. I, you know, I don't see people every day. I don't do anything. And he said, good, now you know how it feels but to be like me. Yeah? <laughs> Everyone got a bit of a first-hand experience of social isolation and it put yeah. it high on our priorities is that yeah. we do need to socially interact with people. Yeah, so absolutely. I think that was one of the more positive effects. Mm-hmm. Some of the negatives, we, you know, some men have been a bit reluctant to go back to the sheds. There was a bit of a slow start, um, but most sheds now have pretty much fully recovered and, you know, it was back to normal like nothing had ever happened. That's great. So how, how, how are we going to expand this uh, movement of AMSA this year? This year, look, I think um, we're going to do a lot of celebrations, of course, for 30 years. Yeah. Um, it's going to be the main focus of Men's Shed Week in September. Uh-huh. Uh, we're doing a bit of a, a tour around the sheds of where of where it all began, um, get a bit more uh, public profile, I suppose. But I think one of the, the big achievements we've had is everybody now around the country knows exactly what a men's shed is. Mm. Yeah. Ten years ago, that wasn't the case. If we've achieved anything, you know, and one of the greatest achievements, you know, besides the, you know, the effect of saving lives is that everyone knows what a men's shed is. Yeah, people have a really warm attitude to the whole, the whole. It's very positive. It's a a nice story. And, and, you know, even, you know, people who have absolutely nothing to do with men's sheds, um, who only basically might have seen the ad on TV Mm. or something, um, yeah, there's this real warm uh, feeling that you get when, when yeah. you talk to people about men's yeah. sheds and yeah. uh, they, they, they fully realise, you know, how important they are. Yeah, and I think we've hit a lot of our goals. You know, the, the, we've got sheds out there, we've got a high profile and the sheds are very sustainable now and they pay a key part in their own communities. They're giving mm. back. The yeah. communities got behind them and gave a lot to those sheds to help them develop. Now they've reached a stage where they're giving back to the community. Yeah. yeah. Now, you, you've seen a lot of sheds. Uh, I've seen quite a few mm. as well yeah. in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, but it, what's the hallmark of a great shed? Look, and you can sense it as soon as you can walk into a great shed. And it, I, you ne- I never measure sheds on the size of them. You know, they're all keen to get there and say, oh, we've got this big shed and we've got all this great equipment and we've got this. Yeah. You sense it as soon as you walk in there, the atmosphere, the heart and mm. soul of the shed. Mm. Um, and I learnt this very much in the early days with the Windale project. The hardest thing it was when I got involved in that project, the shed was built. It was probably the biggest in the country back then. They had plenty of money, all these tools and equipment, but to give it the heart and soul, that was the hard thing. Yeah. You know, and you can 
it's hard to describe that, but you feel it. And I'm sure you've felt this a, a number of times, John. I, I know when you and I went to Raymond Terrace Shed, as soon as you walked in, you felt the heart and soul of that shed. Yes, exactly. And and the other shed that we went to up uh, around Port Stephens Way. Salamander Bay. The yeah, Salamander yeah, Bay yeah. shed. I mean, that, that also... Had, had this that wonderful, warm feeling. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And that's what makes a great shed. Yeah. When the guys are all good mates, they, yeah, there's a rule out there in sheds. Uh, they'll often say, you, you leave your ego at the door, you leave your past <laughs> at the door. Yes. And you walk in and you're one of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and leave the politics <clears throat> at home. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, which, which is, you know, which is a bit of a bit of a problem for me, you know, because um, every now and again you, you, something interesting might yep. pop up, but yep. I'm not allowed to talk about it either. So yeah. you know, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> we try and stay out of the but hey, you hear plenty around the coffee table good political arguments in a men's shed, but um, yeah, everyone's got an opinion on it. Yeah, exactly. So what do you think? Uh, what do you, I, I sort of asked that before in a, in a different way, but what's What's the next thing for the men's sheds? Uh, again, it's, it's really hard as that um, because we started with that organic growth and we've at Amsterdam, yeah. we're directed by the sheds. Yeah. So it's what direction the sheds, and we're always getting input. And we, I keep, I recently wrote this in the, our last newsletter, thanking the sheds for their input and ideas. We can't run with all of them, mm. you know, costs, logistics, legals, sure. things like that. But we, we're their association, so they need to direct it. So it's what angle the sheds will take is what angle we will take. We'll just keep providing the service for, for mm. them, that support to, you know, sail their own paths. Yep. We don't want to get there and say to all the sheds, this is the direction you must go and we're going this way. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. Right. So they really need to drive drive AMSA and where it wants to go and what type of things they want us to develop and refine for them. Well, it's really exciting and uh, I'm looking forward to the, the rest of the year. Yeah, and, we've uh, got a big year planned this yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. So we'll we'll get so out there and do a few travels yeah, this year. It's going to be fun. Yeah. yeah. And th- as long as we can um, have the odd fishing expedition and game of golf <laughs> along the way, mate. <laughs> that would be great. I'm talking with David Helmers, Chief Cook and Bottle Washer <laughs> at the Australian Men's Shed Association. And uh, congratulations on 30 years of AMSA. Uh, it's it's an absolutely wonderful thing. It's a, it's a, it's a great initiative for... Uh, for people who've uh, retired, and, and I suppose some who who haven't quite retired yet, exactly. you know. So if you've got a men's shed in your area, get out there and join and uh, and have a have a great time. And thanks very much, David. Oh, and, thank um, you, John. And we'll we'll speak maybe at the end of the year and uh, have a yeah, wrap up. Have a wrap up. That'll be a good idea. That'll be great. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Bye bye. On the road on the shed wireless. Well, it's time to welcome back Butch, and Butch has been on the road. Now, last time we spoke to Butch, he'd been up around Darwin area and been menaced by sharks. Now, Butch, you've been back to Bellingen right lately. Um, any sharks? Yeah, only <laughs> should mention. It's, it's amazing how many sharks have just suddenly um, interacting with people, as they call it. Yeah. Interacting. Yeah. Um, Mainly the ones that interact with us when we're fishing are the ones that come up and steal your fish. Mm. As you're landing the fish, they come up and steal it. So just recently a mate of mine in, in Elizabeth Bay in the harbour in a kayak. Elizabeth Bay in Sydney, yeah. Yeah, in the in a kayak just yep. near Garden Island there. It's deep water there. That's where 
bull sharks tend to hang out in the harbour. Um, he was trying to land this um, Mulloway would have been at least 10 kilos that I could tell from the head mm. because that's all that was left. Wow. <laughs> he was in a kayak and he was trying to land a, He's a in Mulloway a kayak. and he was just trying to pull it out of the water and this, this bull shark came up and just wolfed it down, left, wow. it, left him the head. I mean, it's quite incredible because, you know, if I think back probably – probably 20 years, yep. uh, bull sharks never got a mention anywhere. No. It's it's as if they've been uh, recently discovered. And you were talking about Garden Island. There was that mm. Navy diver was attacked uh, uh, by yep. a bull shark a few years ago as well there. Yeah. Well, what, what, what's um, been discovered by the DPI, New South Wales DPI, over the last 10 years or so, they've been doing a study just on bull sharks in the harbour mm-hmm. and they've tagged 500 of them. Wow. Just in Sydney Harbour? Just in the harbour. And what they do is they put a sonic tag in them and then they've got transponders all through the harbour mm. and the, in real time it shows up on their computer. They'll say, oh, what's shark number 51 up to today? Right. Oh, it's just swum under the harbour bridge oh. and it's heading west. They can tell. Yep. So what they've discovered, particularly the ones in the harbour, they mainly live in deep water during the day. Mm-hmm. They tend to catch them at night in shallower water. Yep. So anyone that's wading or swimming in, in shallow water probably hasn't been molested by them at all, you know. Mm. We wouldn't even know that. And During I do a lot of wading. Yeah. I've never seen a shark ever. Mm. But what they've also found, that in winter, when the water's too cold in Sydney Harbour, guess where they go? North. North to what? the Gold Coast. The Gold Coast. Oh, <laughs> my God. And they live in those man-made canals. Yes, I've known about that there. for quite a long time. There's people who get out there with very heavy gear and uh, yep. and, and yep. try and catch them. Yeah. So uh, now apparently bull sharks they they actually feed by touch. They yeah. haven't. Got the, uh, what I was reading a while yeah. ago okay. is that yep. they their senses aren't fabulous, uh, and so basically whatever they bump into, they'll have a crack at it. Yeah, that could be right. I know they I know they definitely react to fish that have been caught and are being trying to be landed by a fisherman. Yep. So the, it's the typical shark response of a wounded fish, a dying fish, a fish in panic, and they zoom in on that. And that's, that's what happens. That's pretty well endemic with just about everything in the in the water, isn't it? Yes. You know, they they pick up on those uh, distress vibes yep. and uh, and move in because they weren't um, they weren't bull sharks up in Darwin, were they? You said they were whalers. Uh, yeah, they were mainly. We did well. We thought they were mainly whalers, but. One of the guides that was up there said there's bull sharks up there as well. Okay. And um, so they're everywhere. And the thing, uh, unique thing about bull sharks is they can tolerate fresh water. So they yeah. will go right up into the fresh, one of the few sharks that can do that. Yep. So a couple of trips back in Bellingen, we were right up in the fresh water and we'd caught a bass, which are only basically in fresh water. And that was bitten in half by a bull shark. Mm. But obviously a small one because the shape of the bite was a small crescent. Yeah. So it was only sort of a metre long mm. up in the fresh. But the one that took my, I caught a uh, Trevally just two days ago. Two that, days ago, yeah. Yeah, that would have been at least 60 centimetres, the Trevally. Yep. And the shark came along and just wolfed the whole thing down. <laughs> and I, well, you laugh, but I lost a $25 lure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, I think that's why I don't like lure fishing. I'm too Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, uh, and Peter, our friend up at Bellingen, he uh, he had an encounter with a shark as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, 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 well, 
the, the weird thing is that last time I was, it was only a couple of days ago, after I hooked that trevally and lost it to the shark, the shark came up about five metres away and, and he Peter's being up high on the foredeck could look down and see the shark. It was at least seven, eight foot long. Mm. And we think it had probably eaten half the trevally and came back for the other half. Uh-huh. And then, of course, but, but this was the weird thing. We are fishing away and we thought, oh, we'll motor away from here. We start to motor away and there was a bump. There was a bump. Uh. And it wasn't a log. No. <laughs> Straight over the top of it. So I reckon the, the, the bull shark was just sitting in the shade under the boat yeah. waiting for us to get another fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's not much you can do about it. You can't spray them with air again. No, you I mean, can't. <laughs> it's, it's a real dilemma because there seems to be more of them and, of course, they're getting bigger and yeah. they're learning to target fishermen. That's do you have any the, theory about any of this? Well, I, only that it's a learnt behaviour. Uh, what you'd call learnt behaviour in the animal world, where we're all animals want an easy feed, don't they? Mm-hmm. You know, every animal wants to yeah. have an easy feed. And what could be easier for a shark than to wait under a boat for a fisherman to hook something yeah. and then ambush it while it's all weak and tired and can't get away yeah. rather than patrolling up and down trying to get a mullet, a live mullet that's, that's going to escape very easily or, or a trevally that's too quick for it. So it stands to the reason that most animals just try and get an easy feed, and that's oh, what's happening. That's incredible. Well, it's uh, I'm going to change the subject quickly. Yep. Uh, 30 years of men's sheds. We're uh, celebrating that right now. Is that right? 30 years. It's incredible, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. And is it still being sponsored by the government and all that? Well, yeah, little bits here and there, yes, okay, yes. Good, you know, good. We've got our toe in the water okay. and hopefully they'll be nice to us forever. <laughs> now, um, now, I think last time or the time before we spoke about uh, you were out there teaching some boys at the Probus Club the how Probus to fish. The Probus Club, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, what was your latest um, little <laughs> escapade? Well, the latest escapade is we what we normally do, half a dozen of us fish on, off the shore in Sydney Harbour, uh-huh. and I teach them all the little bits and pieces of tying knots, things that they don't don't know. Tying knots is pretty basic, you would think, but a lot of them couldn't tie the knots properly. And mm. then taught them how to use different lures. But we've been at least six times now, haven't, haven't caught a fish, <laughs> which <laughs> a little bit disappointing. Have not but, caught a fish. But they they persevere for an hour. They don't care because afterwards we go have a nice lunch, sit down lunch with a with a few beers. And the rest of the Pro- Probus Club turn up. Oh, okay. So they don't they don't show up for the fish. They no, just no, show, they, up for the they show up for the so lunch. So they know how good you are at fishing. <laughs> is that yeah. the story? <laughs> They're just not keen on fishing, that's all. They're keen on lunch, though. Okay. What's coming up? Anything? Uh, for me, uh, not nothing much till May when I'll be going to um, probably over to um, the West West Coast. Mm-hmm. The Kimberleys. Oh, I've okay. Never been to the Kimberleys. No, uh, I haven't it's, it's supposed to be wonderful, mm. uh, the scenery and everything. But I'm going on a, a fishing-specific um, charter. Right. That's uh, a nine-day liverboard out of uh, Broome or the next town up Derby, is it? From just north of Broome? Anyway. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. So we get a, we fly to Broome. We, we get a, a car to to um, where the, the boat is, get on the boat for nine days. Mm-hmm. They come back and then you fly out of Broome back home. 
Now, do they know that you're a, a known shark attractor? <laughs> yeah. No, I spoke, <laughs> I spoke to Bruce, who runs the thing, and I said I was complaining about all the shark problems everywhere. And he said, if, in fact, he said they don't have as much of a problem in the Kimberleys. Oh, okay. Right. Well, so, you'll sort that out, won't I'll, you? I'll sort, sort <laughs> it. But my theory is because not too many people fish the Kimberleys mm-hmm. because it's so remote, right? Yeah. So the sharks in that area haven't glommed onto the idea of… They haven't got the learned experience. Learned experience. Okay. That's my theory. Right. I'm about to find out. Yes, you are. And I, can't <laughs> wait to, I can't wait to hear about that trip. And, uh, and whatever else uh, you're going to be into because uh, we'll speak to you probably before that. Okay. Uh, so we'll have another chat and just see what's, what's out there, what's on the road with Butch. Thanks again, mate. That's all right, mate. See you Bye-bye. soon. Bye-bye. On the tools. On the Shed Wireless. Today we're thrilled to be back on the tools in the kitchen with Adrian Richo Richardson, AMSA's resident handyman, Marty Least, caught up with Richo for some more tips in the kitchen. All right, guys, we're on the tools again and we are back in the kitchen. Last year, end of last year, just before Christmas, we were very lucky enough to have uh, Adrian Richardson, celebrity chef. Adrian is a master chef. He is, they call him the... Meat maestro, the master of meat, the guru of the grill. I've got another one, king of the carnivores. I don't know how you feel about that one. The owner of a few restaurants. He's read, written several books on TV all the time. You can't miss him on Good Chef, Bad Chef every afternoon. What do you do in your spare time, Adrian? Well, I do podcasts like this with you guys. Oh, there you go. Good, good choice. Good choice. Mate, thanks for, very much for coming along. I must tell you, I nailed the Christmas pork this year. The, the crackling was superb. And I took all the credit for it too. <laughs> yeah, did it, yeah. You, you, you told everyone, you know what? I think I'm going to uh, call Richo up and give him the tip because this yeah. is uh, better than he does. I, well, I sort of told him that you were taking tips from me, but you okay. know, either 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 or either. <laughs> Mate, we're, we're still enjoying some beautiful summer weather. It's been, been a great summer, some great summer days around most of the country, anyway. And uh, but you know, soon enough, we're, we're coming up to autumn, and uh, the leaves will start falling, and, and naturally the the uh, weather will start to change and start to get slightly cooler. And I, and I was just wondering, mate, do, do, like our palates change, obviously, during during the winter months. You know, we go from outdoors and maybe hot salads and things like that during the hotter months to, to the stews and roasts, I guess, during the the, war, the cooler months. But um, do the palates seem to change much on the menus within the restaurants? Yeah, yeah there's I mean, a couple of things happen. Is one, Once when it gets cold outside, especially in Melbourne, it gets quite cold, you're finding people are, are looking for more uh, that that warm, hearty stuff. You know, things like we do, do a lovely suet pastry pie. You know, you're going to go for that as it's cold outside. You're going to be having nice steaks. Um, you know, we, we tend to move things around. Um, so we might be doing a, a, a roast pork. Um, we do that pretty much all year round. But, you know, in, in summertime, it might be with some lovely fresh tomatoes, um, you know, some baby fennel, that type of thing. And as we move into wintertime, you know, with some with some peas that have been cooked with bacon and some butter, um, some braised Whitloff, those kinds of things. So you can, you know, you can you can move move a dish through all of the seasons. So the hero's still there. You just change how it's presented and, and the things that go with it. 
Yeah, I, I get that, mate. But myself, I could eat steak every night of the week, any month of the year. But yeah. it's just it's just a matter of that in the, in the winter, I don't like to go out to the barbecue to cook it. I'll cook it inside, maybe have something different, have, you know, yeah. potatoes with it or something instead of, you know, yeah, a with, salad. Yeah. But yeah. With, with, yeah, summertime you'll have a beautiful t- uh, tomato salad with it. In wintertime you want some uh, some mashed potato with, with cream and butter yeah. in it and, uh, and gravy <laughs> over the top of it. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. I love it, mate. I love it. So... So coming into these months, what, what sort of things do you think we'd, we'd find on your menu at home during the autumn months or what, what, what would you suggest for people during the autumn months? Oh, look, look, you can pr- pretty much get every, everything all year round, but I'm starting to make, um, you know, I'll start to make uh, pasta, you know, I'll make some lasagna, some ravioli, those sorts of things. Um, I'll uh, make, um, you know, pies in the oven, you know, the big trays of pies with yeah. the pastry over the top of it. Um, you know, I'll start to roast larger joints of meat with roast potatoes, roasted carrots, roast onions. Those sorts of things work really, really well. And I just love, you know, putting stuff through the oven and roasting it. It's just delicious. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's just like it's like break out the slow cooker and things like that. You start to it's start to it's like you're warming up for winter sort of thing during autumn, isn't it? You're starting to get those those bigger meals and heartier meals happening. You, you, you need to put on the kilos and you need to put on the fat to get you through that cold, <laughs> cold winter to keep you warm. So, so that sort of stuff really works. And, and yeah. the other thing with, with, with um, those, those slower cooked foods, I find them a lot more um, enjoyable to put together. You think a little bit more about them. You're putting more ingredients in there. It's not like just putting a steak on a barbecue and turning it around, yeah. you know, and, and you're using secondary cuts like shanks and shoulders and, and those sorts of things. And, and they're often a lot cheaper to buy, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, with a few uh, ingredients, wine, salt, garlic, those sorts of things, and cooking them low and slow, I reckon you get a much better you know, dish out of it, a much better experience. So true, so true. And, you know, we all we all love experimenting. So, you know, you don't have to be a, a chef or, or a connoisseur to, to cook it, to cook a few meals, but um, we all we all love to cook. But, but, I will, but I will say, if you are a chef, it's going to be so much better. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. You are the king. So, mate, what, have you got any couple of simple, you know, recipes for the shedders out there that might be, you know, might, looked- might start looking at changing their menus? Well, well, look. Something that um I've been making recently is is a, a ragu, um, and I use that as a as a pasta sauce. And I, I do it. There's a couple of ways of doing it. But what I'll do is um you know if I've got some pork belly, you know a piece of um beef chuck, um a little slab of bacon, maybe something like a you know lamb shoulder or some lamb leg. Um, what I'll do with that is pop that into a, a pot with some stock or some water, some wine, some liquid. And I'll add some garlic, some celery, some onion to that. And I'll just simmer it away very gently, you know, with a bit of salt and pepper in there. And you can sort of experiment with that. But what I'm trying to do is, is one, um, cook the meat till it becomes really tender and falls apart. And two, also create a stock that has all that flavor of the meat and the vegetables and things together. And once, it's, once the meat's nice and tender, I just turn the heat off and let it cool down, let the meat cool down in the liquid. And that helps to keep it nice and moist. Once it's nice and uh, n- nice and soft, you know, once it's cooled down, you can handle it. I take the meat out and I gently sort of chop it up and pull it apart a little bit. And then this this goes on a little bit. This is a bit of a steak. But then I'll get it in another pot. Um, I'll, you know, cook some onions, some garlic, a little bit of celery in there, add some wine, some butter, some olive oil, you know, cook that down, add some tomato passata to it. 
And then I'll add the stock. I'll strain it and add that. And you just reduce it down till you start to get a really nice thick tomato-based sauce. But all those other ingredients in there, you know, you're reducing that stock. You've got that real meaty flavor in there. Once you've got the the sauce, you reduce it down till it's a nice thick sauce. You've got to keep stirring it. Make sure you keep stirring it every couple of minutes or so. Once it's reduced down, then I put the meat straight back into it. Just let it come up to the boil quickly and then turn it off. And what you've got is this really rich, tomato-y, meaty-flavoured ragu, and it's got the meat um, all the way through it. And then it's a matter of just boiling up a little bit of pasta and folding it through. It's a really delicious way of, you know, instead of like a tomato sauce, it's actually a really, really flavoursome sauce. Yeah, wow. So resting the meat's pretty important, isn't it? Yeah, when you're cooking all meat, I, I, I like to say when you cook meat, um, you know, probably a good analogy is, is um, you know, it's like shaking up a can of Coke. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you shake it up and if you open it straight away, it goes everywhere. If you let it sit there, it relaxes. When gotcha. you cook meat, all the muscle fibers tense up so that if you mm-hmm. take it you know, straight out and cut it, the, um, the tense muscles are going to squeeze out all the juices. So by resting the meat, you allow the muscle fibers to relax so that when you cut into the meat, all the juices stay in the meat where it belongs. Very, very important. Wow, something I did not know. There you go. Wow, simple, simple. Yes, any, any others that are sort of favourites on your palate? Oh, look, look um, if it's got a pulse, I'll eat it. Um, it's just, <laughs> but, you know, look, I've been, been um, cooking a lamb uh, shoulder. So like a, we call it a banjo. So it's basically the shoulder blade. They're usually about a kilo, kilo and a half sometimes, you know, up to 1.8 kilos. And you go into the butcher, tell them you want the banjo and they'll just take the shank off it. But it's a really interesting cut because it's got the oyster blade and, and two other muscles on it. They are delicious muscles. There's um, a little bit of connective tissue in there, but when you cook it nice and low and slow, that connective tissue, that, that it, it forms like a jelly almost and, and adds so much wow. flavor to it. And you can imagine putting that, you know, that piece of lamb or the lamb shoulder, the banjo, whatever you want to call it, into a tray, some olive oil, some garlic, some rosemary, some thyme on it, a good splush of wine. Um, and then, you know, put maybe you can put some chopped tomatoes on it. You can put some fennel with it, um, you know, and you cover it up with some baking paper and some foil or maybe a lid on top of it to keep all the moisture in there. In the oven, 160 degrees Celsius, It'll take about two hours to cook. And you know when it's cooked because you, you just touch it with a fork and you'll see the meat will want to fall off the bone. You yeah, know, right. if, you, if, it's, if it's spongy and, and it's giving you some resistance, back in the oven. But when, once you get to that stage where it's sort of falling apart, it's just a matter of maybe taking the lid off, let it crisp up a little bit if you like it. But yeah. that is going to be fantastic. You put that on the table with some um, creamy, buttery mashed potato and some minted peas, and you have a feast that you will remember for the rest of your life. <laughs> Sensational. So is it is it true that it's sort of the slower the cook, the tenderer the meat in the end? Or Yeah, yeah. Look, we, we use that slow cooking method. Um, it, it, yes, is to tenderise the meat. And, and what it does, um, a good analogy of, of, of the muscle fibres are like rope. Um, and those secondary cuts that do a lot of work, they're really tough. Like if you try and cook, if you try and cook a you know piece of shoulder like a steak, it's you know it's an oyster plate like a steak. It's gonna you know it's really tough. Yeah. But when you cook it low and slow, that method unwinds the muscle fibers, so they become loose and very very delicate and and a lot easier to eat. Um, you know that to me, there's no such thing as tough meat. 
It's just the method of cooking that, that that's that's, that's got to be changed. Yeah, um, right. The tougher the meat, the lower and slower you cook. But you get, I find, the better results from using those cuts. Yeah, wow. Well, I'll have to experiment a little bit more because I'm, yeah. you know, I'm sometimes I'm just afraid to experiment. You think, oh, you just stick with what you know, but you, you sort of got to have a go and try it, don't you? Yeah, yeah I often, often, um, you know, try. I, I try things all the time, and I'd say to people, you know, if you're going to the supermarket or the market, um, and you see a fruit or a vegetable or a piece of meat that you haven't tried before, just grab it, just buy it. You know, and the chances are, if you take a minute to maybe have a look on YouTube or you know Google, have a Google of it. How do you cook it? Um, yeah. What's the best ways to to to, to utilize that that you know piece of meat or vegetable or fruit? You'll actually get a, a few great ideas. Yeah. And you, you you you're expanding your repertoire. And you look if, if you if you've never cooked a, a, a lamb shoulder before, go down to the butcher, have a chat with the butcher because the ten, nine times out of ten, your butchers are frustrated cooks. They know, they know how to cook it and they'll yeah. give you some great tips as well. And, and, and really a great cheat is get onto YouTube, type in lamb shoulder, slow cooked with garlic and rosemary and up will pop 25 recipes. Yeah, right. Um, you know, and, and usually they'll, they'll get, be able to give you all of the, uh, the important tips to making sure that it's cooked nicely in the end. Brilliant. I think, I think garlic and rosemary are staples with lamb, aren't they? Yeah, it, it's like the duct tape. You you, you put put yeah. that on it, and you know it's going to be right. You know what I mean? <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Well, mate, thank you very much for that. So we've got a we've got a lot of chefs out there in the in the shed world, and um, we're hoping they'll send send through some recipes too on online. They can send us some ideas. But uh, if they want more recipes, there is plenty to go by. We have plenty of books, and we're actually going to give away some of your books, Adrian. Over the year, we've got uh, meat and the good life. You've got a couple more books out there that we're gonna we're gonna give away to some of the listeners. That'd be so, fantastic. Uh, yeah, fantastic, mate! Thank you so much for that, and we can't wait to get cooking. So, <laughs> thanks again. Absolute pleasure. My taste buds are tingling. Let me know if you're going to give a new ingredient a try. I'd love to know how it went. Drop me an email at theshedwireless at menshed.net. On the pulse, on the shed wireless. Welcome to On The Pulse. Today I'm chatting with Professor John McDonald, researcher, friend and patron of the Australian Men's Shed Association. Hello, I'm Stuart Torrance, Men's Health Project Officer for the Australian Men's Shed Association. We're going to put the finger on the pulse of health within the sheds. Since the start of Goldwell Shed in South Australia, we're now celebrating 30 years of sheds. We've come a long way. John, please tell us how you got involved. Well, it's, it's kind of mutual, the connection between myself and Menshed. That's to say, I was, I've been a professor of public health for some time um, at Western Sydney University. I'm now emeritus professor, whatever that means. And um, I'm, I've always been interested in men's health. And we started Men's Health Information and Resource Centre. And um, through that, I had contact with any organisations which said they were doing things for men's health. And to be honest, uh, without flattering anybody, I think the shed movement in its approach was much closer to what we were trying um, from Men's Health Information and Resource Centre all those years ago. That's to say, not insisting on disease and what men are doing wrong, but looking at the health of men. So from that early connection, I, I don't know who, who contacted me or have I contacted them, but anyhow, it's been a mutual support um, <laughs> for some for some years now. You're also, um, you were heavily involved with the um, Mount Druitt Shed, is that right? I helped, I founded the, the Men's Shed Movement along with a 
a priest who was then there called Paul Hanna, a Lebanese man. Um, yes, uh -huh. and it's still going, 2004. It's still going. A, fant a fantastic outreach uh, within that community, and um, I, I see it going from strength to strength. John, we've heard you speak at many of our gatherings and conferences on the benefits of to men's health that come through attending the shed. Can you share some of that information with us? Thinking about this, I remember at the, one of the um, shed meetings, I think it was in Brisbane, but many years ago, the very beginning of my attempt to engage with the sheds in terms of health, I said something like, the sheds are very good for health. And someone from the audience shouted, we don't want sheds to become clinics for doctors. And he was quite right. Absolutely right. So he's spot on. Um, when I talk of health, I'm not talking about making the sheds clinics for doctors who can't reach men, but rather talking about health rather than disease. We need doctors when something goes wrong, when something needs to be fixed. So they're really about disease and illness. But the shed's about health. It's about building health. And there's a lot of research evidence that the kind of support and social contact that people have at that at the shed builds people's immune system and builds their health. So there's um, a lot of research on social isolation. I, I read an article about the uh, uh, detriment of solitary confinement in prisons. Um, is that what sheds are all about, breaking down that social confinement? That's a delicate one in the sense that, of course, sometimes the sheds break down social confinement and social isolation, and sometimes they help people who are lonely. But I do want to insist, and I always have insisted, that that's one side of it. I mean, the sheds are not, first of all, or some people seem to think that, the sheds are not, first of all, for lonely old guys who um, are feeling isolated. That's not the point. <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the other side of isolation is social connection and social gathering. And I sometimes think that the women's, the Country Women's Association, which has been going for many, many years, the New South Wales version, anyhow, um, branch, anyhow, doesn't talk about um, women getting together in order to break their loneliness or to break down social isolation, but they just know it's good for people to get together, and that, in that case, women. And the same is for sheds. There's a lot of evidence that not only is it does it stop isolation, but actually social connection builds your health build your immune system. I don't know if you hear what I'm saying. It's not just to counter something negative. It's actually building something positive. Okay, so I've gone into many sheds over the uh, 12 years that I've been around sheds, and I see a lot of happy faces. Uh, a yeah. lot of guys get a, a, a lot of uh, a kick out of just being around their mates. The camaraderie is fantastic. But I remember, uh, John, listening to you and one of your um, presentations, you talked uh, about that uh, social connectedness, but there was no actually research that went along with it to see, show the benefits. And then you went on to talk about the cortisol effect um, in one of your, can you recall that? Well, two things, if I, see if I can remember the two things I want to say about that, Stuart. One is that um, to say there's no research, there's in a lot of research about the importance of social connection. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it, when I was referring to that, I think I was referring to the fact that nobody had actually done research into the sheds and um, 
that issue. And so yeah. for the first one, I hope it's clear that there is a lot, a lot, a lot. WHO has been, World Health Organization has been promoting for a long time the value for health of social interaction. Now, as regards the shed, when people were saying, well, there isn't this, there isn't research. I had a PhD student um, called Luckman Clambello, who actually looked at the sheds and he went around and he measured he measured the cortisol level, which is the stress hormone and other things, but he measured that. And he measured it in men before they, they joined a shed and six months a year afterwards. So the stress hormone was high in many of them before they joined the, the shed and had dropped. In other words, at once they'd been in the shed for some time. In other words, being in the shed had supported them, had reduced stress and in that sense was good for their health. Now we don't need, to be honest, we don't need that kind of research, at least I don't, but mm. some people do because when we say sheds are good for their health, they say, well, prove it. Well, I think we have proved it. If people want to listen, then it's there's that kind of proof as well as the proof that you've said, Stuart, which mm. is by going into a shed, you're a proof, you, you, you see the proof of well-being of men enjoying one another's company, of enjoying being together and doing things together. Yeah, but indeed, we have, we, there, are, there is research now to show that, that there is a clinical impact as well. So along with your uh, research and with the, your involvement within the sheds, how, how personally have sheds affected you? Oh, well, that, that's a good one because um, I've now, I, I'm now emeritus, which means in my retirement, they've called me an emeritus professor. So, um, but I'm still involved and I am, the sheds have affected me in the sense that I, I believed it before <laughs> and I saw it like you by visiting sheds and sometimes cutting ribbons and opening them as the patron, but opening sheds. But um, actually the, the uh, impact of Luckman Clambello's research really came home to me that um, I'm, I'm not at all shy, not that I was very shy before, but I'm not at all shy to, to remind people that sheds are good for your health and not just as an opportunity for doctors or psychologists to enter. I think that's a, a, a road that we should avoid, but for the very fact of being together, I've seen and I've read and I've seen the importance of social support. I mean, what, what the sheds do in terms of social support is reinforce what I know through my research and through the, the literature on social support and health. It's a reinforcement of the idea. Okay. Uh, in, in regards to, um, we've often seen sheds as being a conduit uh, for health literature and health information. Uh, we call that health by stealth. The guys come for the tools, they come for the camaraderie, uh, they come for the social uh, but then they get this, uh, I suppose, a, a tickle of health information uh, and uh, an opportunity for resources. Is that all part of the message? That's a bit delicate, Stuart, because, of course, it's important to have health information. Of mm -hmm. course, it's important for um, even when we go to a doctor and when there's very good posters and very good information, of course, it's very good. And it's important to know what the first signs of diabetes are and how we can tackle it and um, things like that. So, of course, that's part of the message. But if you'll allow me to be personal and um, people in the shed, David Helmers and others know that I'm quite strong in this, 
the um, the men's health movement, if we can call it that, in Australia has tended to focus on information about health. And with respect, that's not the essence of health. Health information is um, important, but it's not at the essence of it. I repeat, for me, health and the sheds is the actual being together. If it's an occasion for some passing on of some information, fine. Actually, I think the most important passing on of information is what we might call peer education. That's to say, if I'm in the shed and I meet someone and I've got the beginning of diabetes and I meet someone who's already down that road and has been doing this or that, then and he talks about it, then that's much more, there's a lot of evidence that that kind of one-to-one -one, mm -hmm. uh, engagement from someone who's been there and done that is much more effective, effective than any printed information. The same is true about the famous issue of not smoking or smoking. I'm not saying anything about the value of smoking and not smoking. But if someone's trying to give up, and it's very, very difficult for some people, of course, and then they meet someone who's who's tried and tried again and who's done quite well in it, that's much more important and much more effective than reading a pamphlet or watching something on the telly about it, the television about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So um, lived experience uh, speaks volumes is what you're saying. That's exactly, you're speaking like the academic now, good. That's 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 what the literature talks about, lived experience. Um, yeah, that, sorry, that come, came to mind recently in the more difficult situation of suicide where there is an amount, a lot of, there's more men killing themselves than mm. women in Australia, anywhere in the world, but in Australia also. And um, they say, and I have former colleagues, former students working on that, but who work with people who have the lived experience of walking down that road and who want to help others not go down that road. So lived experience, not just in the issue of suicide, but uh, as mm. the other things I mentioned, like smoking or diabetes or even heart conditions, um, very, very important. And how would you meet people with lived experience? Um, well, the shed's a very good way to do that. Yeah. So it's a conduit for information, and, and, and we're back to where I, I first went with uh, Health by Stealth. Uh, it's, it's using every conduit to get that information across, uh, and I think the uh, shed uh, ticks the boxes. Let me ask you a personal question, John. What are you going to be doing in the shed now you're an emer emeritus professor and have time on your hands? Well, I don't have much time on my hands, to be honest. Um, I don't tell everybody this, but this year I'll be 80 years old. And I think it's um, okay to have retired a couple of years ago. Of course, COVID was a good example of isolation. That's another issue. But um, what I'm doing is I'm writing a bit. And actually, <laughs> the book I'm writing now, this has been my third attempt, my third book. And the book I'm writing has reached the stage of, I talk about health, I talk about the social determinants of health, including social support. And now I, I've talked about boys and I've talked about men in their middle lives, you know, with work and relationships. And now, <laughs> now I'm talking about men in older age. And not that the shed is only for men in older age, but of course I find myself writing almost exclusively about the shed because the shed's movement, because let's face it, it's an Australian phenomenon and we should be quite proud of that. It's spread to lots of other countries, to some other countries, but it's a uh, certainly has its origins here in Australia, and we shouldn't be shy about that. So what am I doing? Well, I'm actually retired, <laughs> and I'm traveling a bit with my son, which is good. 
and um, I'm writing, which is really what it's about. And I have contacts in Chile who are interested in men's health, and I keep contact with PhD students who are writing about it. So um, that's what I'm doing. I'm having a good life, Stuart. Fantastic. So uh, at the end of the day, um, these people that you've surrounded yourself are your men's shed. Um, and, and as with everybody else, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be a men's shed. It can be a bowling club. It can be a probus or a rotary club or something like that. Wherever people get together, um, what you're saying is, is that's a good conduit for a good, healthy lifestyle. Wow, that's fantastic. You should say that. And I think you should say that as much as you can, Stuart, that of course we should support the shed. And I'm an absolute strong supporter of the shed movement. But you're absolutely right. It's the getting together. Sometimes it's, I'm not a church going person myself now, but there's a lot of evidence, research evidence, that the camaraderie, that the connection with other people through the mosque or through the, the shed, through the church or through yeah. the that actual, there's evidence, scientific evidence, that that can prolong life and help people resist disease. It's remarkable, but it's true. And you're right. The shed is the shed movement is a symbol, is a, a manifestation of the importance of social support for health. Emeritus Professor John McDonald, thank you very much for catching up with me today on The Pulse. Good luck and thank you very much. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to mailhealth.org.au. Everything you hear on The Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. Nailed it with Rick Woodchip. G'day, Shedders, Rick Woodchip here. How y'all going today? Me? Not so good at the moment, Shedders. I'm laid up in bed like an invalid because I've done me back in again. Yeah, I'm laying here helpless and hopeless, feeling sorry for myself and having to be weighted on hand and foot. Well, it does have its perks. Sometimes I let my imagination run away with me capabilities, especially when I'm kicking the ball in the backyard with the grandkids. In my mind, I can still bend it like Beckham, but in reality, the only thing I bent was me back over the ball. Yeah, they say injuries are the best teachers, but I always have been a slow learner. I tend to forget how old and fragile I am at times, and these grand, I have these grand illusions that I'm 21 again and try to do things I'm just not bloody capable of anymore. Yeah, it sure does catch up with you, like they say. If I knew then what I know now, might have taken a bit more care of myself. But, like most things, fellas, I thought I was bloody invincible when I was a young'un. I treated my body like it was unbreakable, and I abused the hell out of it. Must be just something in a man's DNA that he has to try and lift more, run further and faster, tackle harder, and work bigger days and take more risks than the other bloke. Like a mark of manhood. Who you can take the biggest pound and wins? Well, it may have impressed a few people back then, but I sure am paying for it now. If only the young rip could see the old rip now. Not so impressive. I was six foot tall and bulletproof back in the day. Superman had nothing on me, in my head anyway. And instead of working smarter, I just worked harder. 
Instead of taking me time and getting help I needed when I should have, I just did it myself, to the detriment of me body. And never listened to the signs when me body was trying to tell me these up. And going to the doctor, that was for wimps. But I get it from the old man, I guess. Monkey see, monkey do, you know. I used to see him take painkillers every morning just to get out of bed in his latter years. I swore I'd never get that bad. But look at me now. I just hope my young'uns are a bit smarter than me. Yeah, it can be a bugger getting old. And it can be hard coming to terms with the fact that we just ain't as young as we used to be and could easily fall into the trap of thinking that our best years are behind us. And neglecting your body can certainly catch up with you in time. I never realised that I was an old man until I started walking like one. And don't ignore the signs. Yeah, your body sure has a way of letting you know when to slow down. And if you don't listen, it'll sit you smack on your ass until you do. And when you get older and you do do yourself a mischief, it takes twice as long to recover. Like now. I tend not to worry too much about it. Getting older doesn't stop me from doing stuff, but I'll just do it a bit slower than I used to. And doing some things a little slower can actually be a benefit. You know what I mean, Shedders? <laughs> so, I take the good with the bad. I'm still capable of doing plenty. It's just now I have to give it a little more consideration and take me time doing it. Life ain't a race to the finish line, and sometimes the longest way around is the fastest way home. The point is, fellas, we get one go at this life thing, and only one body to last us the full ride. And like any tool or piece of machinery, the better you look after it, the longer it'll last. And it's a bugger trying to get replacement parts. I've already got a new hip, a new knee, and some other bits and pieces. But until they can do a spine replacement, I'm just going to have to learn to ease up. But I've got to tell you, fellas, it can be nice having to be waited on every now and again. Anyway, fellas, I'm going to get myself a sandwich. Hey, love, I'm hungry again. <laughs> Lunch coming right up. Okay, fellas, take it easy and see you next time. Bye, guys. Well, it's great to be back and I'm looking forward to another season of Shedding Conversations. The Shed Wireless mailbag has been looking a bit like my letterbox lately, only full of bills. Do you know a shedder with one hell of a life story? Or maybe it's even you. Send an email to theshedwireless at menshed.net. I've got some pretty snazzy giveaways for my mailbag mentions this year, so include your return postal address when you get in touch. And, most importantly, don't forget to share the podcast with your shedding mates. Give them a hand to subscribe if you can, or send them to www.menshed.org forward slash the shed wireless. So until next time, folks, for the love of shedding. Ciao. Yeah.